Hello, genre benders, genre blenders, and crossoverists, too. Welcome to another episode of Right Minded. I am Brooke Warner here with my genre blending, bending co host, Grant Faulkner, to talk about the topic that is of great interest to me of genre blending and bending. And, Grant, the reason that we're talking about this and why it's such a good subject is because so many writers do it or want to do it. And so I'm particularly curious about why some do it and get away with it, and why others do it and get pushback. And today's guest is a genre blender, in addition to being a cross-genre writer, uh, Barbara Graham, because she's known for being a nonfiction writer of several best-selling books, and she's also a memoirist. And the book that we're going to be talking about today, which is coming out this week, is her debut novel, What Jonah Knew. And it's also a blend of a lot of things. It's heavily spiritual, metaphysical, and readers have called it a psychological thriller. And all of that stuff doesn't totally seem like it goes together, especially when you layer on top of that, that it happens to be literary. (laughs) Uh, And so what came to mind actually was like a book like The Lovely Bones or The Time Traveler's Wife, uh, you know, that might fit some of those same characteristics. Uh, But Grant, I just wanted to start on this topic of crossing over on the genre front, because lots of writers of fiction have previously written nonfiction books. And so I'm curious if many NaNoWriMo people come, you know, who are previously published nonfiction writers or who are more comfortable in the nonfiction realm, and then they're intimidated by the idea of writing a novel. Yeah, definitely. I I think both of those words are interesting to consider in in this um, framework, both published and nonfiction. And I think uh, once a writer, once we get into a genre, sometimes it's, and once we become proficient in it, I think it's really hard to cross over sometimes, you know, Um, it's just like, we're safe in our genre. We know it. It's a, it's a house in a neighborhood in a town we're familiar with. So I think it's intimidating, especially to go from nonfiction to fiction, because it is a really different realm, a really different way of going about writing. And then the published part too, I think published writers sometimes have a really tough time because jumping into something new, it's a messy endeavor and writing a novel is especially messy, you know, Barbara kept using words like there are infinite possibilities with the novel, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. which there aren't necessarily with nonfiction or memoir or a different type of possibilities. And so, you know, in terms of advice, you know, I really think NaNoWriMo itself is perfect for that because that goal deadline framework, that um, invitation to kind of get messy and explore those infinite possibilities. I mean, that's all what you have to do to write fiction. And I think especially those who are published, you know, they, they sometimes get hung up on that idea of perfection and the fine writing that they're comfortable doing in a genre. And I think it's, it's just good to abandon that notion of perfection and, you know, get a messy and imperfect while you're, you're pursuing your imagination in your novel. Yeah, I love that because we're in the middle of summer right now. And so NaNoWriMo is out on the horizon. So for any of you listening to this who are feeling like, okay, yes, I have always wanted to write a novel, but I'm super intimidated. Now you know that you're going to do NaNoWriMo and give it a try. Go do it. And I had a second question that speaks to the blending part of today's episode. You know, I have a lot of authors on She Writes Press and Spark Press who genre blend. And I'm not sure if many or most writers understand until they try to get published that the industry is fairly myopic in its views about categories. You know, so what happens is that you'll have a book that is two things. Let's say it's a mystery and a romance, which is actually kind of a common one at She Writes. And they're really two separate genres in publishing. And so a lot of our 
buyers, you know, people who buy our books are, are they're separate people, right? One is a mystery buyer and one is a romance buyer. Sometimes not always, but what will happen is that we'll be forced, I guess, to choose one genre over another. And so it's the equivalent of being told to stay in one lane. And so I understand this from a sales perspective, but genre blending is also super common. And so then writers can experience a lot of grief around this when they start the process of shopping their books because they'll push up against agents and editors and publishers who are really purists on this matter. And Barbara, I'm excited that we get to talk to her a little bit about this because it's an important one. And I've heard stories over the years that writers have not been able to get uh, get picked up by agents, for instance, because of genre blending. And so I'm just curious about your thoughts on all this. And if you have any stance on genre blending, or do you think that the industry is just too myopic on this point, like I do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a few different answers to the same question. And uh, one, yeah, you're right. These categories are narrowly defined, and they exist to sell books more than they exist to serve the creativity involved in writing a story. So if a writer wants to sell their novel, then they'll have to think of what category it best fits in. So your thriller might also be a romance, as you mentioned. It might even be a fantasy novel to boot, uh, but you generally have to have to pick one to kind of go with or lean into. My second response, though, is that stories are many things, and there's no reason you can't have a mystery romance sci-fi time travel novel, <laughs> um, you know, just reflecting on those infinite possibilities of the novel that Barbara talks about in this interview. Um, so in the end, I, I want to support people's unfettered imagination. I don't think marketing categories improve stories or improve the world. So I think writers should always write where their imaginations lead them, perhaps especially when they're crossing borders and combining them because mixing things up generally leads to good things in my book. And that said, I tend to like mess, Brooke, and going back to <laughs> the first part of my answer, publishers and booksellers generally want tidier categories, tidier books, I think. So I, I wondered if you can speak more to some of the genre blending you've seen. Barbara's book definitely has this genre blending thing going on, which was why I wanted to talk about it today. Um, you know, the book industry is very siloed also around secular and non-secular. And so what Jonah knew is a very spiritual book, but it's not religious. Uh, and I think if it had been, it would not have been as well received as it has been, you know, by the industry specifically. Um, there are a lot of genre questions about what qualifies a book as a thriller. Uh, that's something that I certainly have grappled with as a publisher. A lot of commercial and upmarket novels have aspects of being a thriller, but then they're not really thrillers. Uh, and many of what I would just call regular novels, like commercial novels that we read, might center a murder or have elements of a mystery without being a genre mystery novel. Uh, and just as many books have strong romance plots, but they're not romance novels. And I think that this is what comes up for us most often. Another space where this comes up for us, though, is the YA space, because a lot of authors think that they have a young adult readership for their rather commercial novel. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we want to categorize the book as YA, because it actually limits the readership sometimes. And what I love about what uh, Jonah knew when I opened up the arc uh, is that the jacket copy of the book calls it a psychological thriller. Amy Tan's blurb on the front called it a literary thriller. And then it's a book of suspense with a supernatural twist, and it has strong elements of the spiritual and the metaphysical. Uh, and Barbara is bringing in a particular kind of writing that I would say is less often seen in fiction and more reserved for nonfiction, where she is musing over larger concepts like metaphysics. Uh, and as one good reader 
or rather Goodreads reader, put it succinctly, saying uh, it's an examination of the spiritual and scientific concept of reincarnation. Think Buddhism meets quantum physics. You sold me right there. Buddhism meets quantum <laughs> physics. I wish that were its own section in a bookstore. You know, if I if I went in and just saw a little corner, Buddhism physics section. And, you know, I think that this is part of the joy of independent booksellers. There are a lot of imaginative, rebellious bookstores that sometimes go rogue with their book categories and do fun things like that. And it actually makes book browsing and buying a lot more fun. So I wish the industry would learn from the, that kind of idiosyncratic way of presenting books. Because in the end, I think this is the way things work in life. Nothing is just one thing. It's interesting because you know, there used to be a subgenre of novels uh, that were called novels of ideas, where authors' goals were as much about imparting and exploring philosophical ideas as they were about telling a story. I'm thinking of novels like Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain or even, you know, some of Tolstoy. And authors generally stay away from blending deep thinking with stories now. Uh, but I think, you know, many are still tempted to do so. And I think our storytelling world is worse the more it puts a grid of expectations on a work. Um, you know, it's an odd thing because it's it's largely, these these categories are largely about, you know, sales and setting expectations. Actually, you go to the thriller section because you have expectations of what a thriller novel is and consumers generally want their expectations met. But on the other hand, I'm curious, you know, I always think we live to be surprised and challenged, you know, aren't mm -hmm. those the moments when our expectations take a, a different direction and the moments that are most meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel that way too. And I, you know, I do increasingly think that writers are pushing the envelope in their fiction and bucking against the trend of being limited to particular categories. And, you know, once upon a time when Amazon wasn't king and when fewer writers were independently publishing, I think the question of categories and staying in your genre lane was more limiting than it is today. And, you know, I still sometimes feel limited by it, I think, because I'm a publisher who's kind of forced into the confines of a traditional distribution relationship. And so it, it does impact me, but it does not affect my choice of what we publish. And so that's important. You know, I would never suggest to an author that they bump up some element of their book to make it more of a thriller or more of a mystery, but agents do this for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, I recently worked with an author who uh, we together did two passes of a novel that started out pretty commercial. And then the agent was pushing to make it a thriller so much so that after our two passes, the agent said to the author, you know, you need to work with someone who specializes in thrillers, which is not my thing. Uh, and so that was about making the book more saleable. It has yet to be sold. So we will see. But I know that the agent wanted the stakes to be higher and wanted more action. And I do understand that. Uh, and then recently we had on the show Zakia Dalila Harris and that book, uh, The Other Black Girl, is a really interesting parallel because she brought the supernatural and a strong psychological thriller element to what was definitely a commercial novel. And that was, you know, widely well received. So I definitely want to encourage writers to write the storylines you want to write. Uh, you know, despite publishing industry pushback, the readers are going to follow you as long as you have a great story. That's it. A great story, compelling characters, beautiful writing. There's no one category for all of that except the good book category. So I can't wait to talk more with Barbara Graham right after this short break.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone. We're so thrilled to have Barbara Graham on the show today. She's an author, essayist, journalist, and playwright, and her work has appeared in Glamour, O, Utney Reader, Vogue, NPR.org, and many other places. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Eye of My Heart, the national bestseller, Women Who Run with the Poodles, and Camp Paradox, her memoir. And so we are lucky to get to speak to her today about her new novel, What Jonah Knew. Uh, and she's also a playwright uh, that has had plays produced off-Broadway at the WPA Theater in New York and theaters around the country. So Barbara, hello, welcome. Hi, Brooke. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, we're absolutely thrilled to talk about this new novel. And I want to start with that, that you're a New York Times bestselling author who happens to be a debut novelist. And I know that <laughs> many writers dream of, uh, well, especially I should say many writers of nonfiction dream of writing a novel one day. And I'd like to start with what your experience was. You know, was there, was that true for you? And was there a particular thing that happened when you finally decided, okay, yes, this is the right idea and this is the right time? Yeah. You know, I've always wanted to write novels more than anything. Uh, the closest I come was writing plays, which are a form of fiction, except plays don't allow you to go inside the characters' heads. That That's left up to the actors. So it was always a little bit restrictive for me. Um, but I, I always thought about it. And the other thing about, I think everything that one wants to write kind of demands its own rightful form. So this story came to me after I had done a bunch of research, a whole lot of stuff had happened, and I knew the only way to tell it was in fiction. Um, so there was a real learning curve in it, but I also felt like there's so much freedom in it. In fiction, you can write from inside the minds of your characters. You can let the story go where it wants to go. I'd written a lot of memoir, but with memoir, you're confined to your own life experience. You can't go outside of it. Um, I mean, you can. There are all kinds of imaginative things you can do in memoir, and that's true. But with fiction, you have just a, an incredible freedom and you can sometimes, I find, and I found in this book, tap into very deep truths that, that you couldn't get in your own, in your own life. And I think, I guess in my view, all writing is sort of inherently a search for truth. Jessamine West said, fiction reveals truths that reality obscures. And I love that because when you're confined to facts, you're confined. And and fiction just gives you incredible freedom to roll. I love those words, Barbara. And that's how I definitely view fiction as a search for truth and a search for the questions sometimes, not necessarily answers. Mm -hmm. And uh, what Jonah knew has been described as a metaphysical journey wrapped in the breathtaking pages of a psychological thriller. 
And the reader knows very early on in the book that there's a murder and the implication that Jonah is reincarnated um, is clear from the outset. So it's not so much a, a whodunit story, but more. Um, and as a few readers have pointed out, it's it's more like a literary thriller. And that's what's interesting me right now is, is if you could speak a little bit about this this blend of writing you're doing, combining genre fiction, but with a literary bent. Yeah. Um, well, in writing the book as a thriller, I, I felt like the thriller form would allow me to go very deep into the spiritual material, but while also propelling the story forward. And I because it's an unusual story, it's kind of a quirky story. It's not your conventional thriller. So I felt like if I wrote it in any other way, it might not have the same kind of propulsive energy. And anyway, it was really fun to write combined metaphysics and murder. That was that was pretty fun. <laughs> Love it. But truly, it felt like it had it was the right container for it it's kind of what i said before where each thing that one is compelled and i think compelled is the operative word to write kind of demands its own form so this absolutely came to me kind of full blown as a thriller in a very intuitive way but i knew from the beginning that it was a thriller well, and you also chose to write the book from multiple points of view, and you do have this literary device where the reader is seeing, through the use of italicized short vignettes, what happened to Henry, who is your murder victim, and really through the get-go and through his eyes uh, and even through his death. And so I'm really curious to hear a bit more about these choices that you made regarding how to show your characters on the page in these various ways. Yeah, Again, it was really intuitive um, more than anything. Mm. I knew from the very beginning that I wanted to write in the voices of the two mothers, Jonah's mother, the young boy who has these memories of a previous life, and the mother, Helen, uh, whose son, Henry, has disappeared. And I just knew from the very beginning that I needed to do that. And then you know, writing fiction, writing everything, but in a way, fiction even more because it's such a, you have a wider berth to work from. Henry's voice after he died and during his death just kind of happened. It was really one of those magical things. It wasn't something I set out to do. Actually, I had written his, I had written only one scene at the very end of the book where he speaks, where he's sort of ready, his spirit is ready to take off. And then as I reworked the book and revised many drafts, he kept talking more. And I I loved that. So, mm -hmm. And then I always knew I was going to write in Jonah's voice, but he had to grow up a little bit before he could have his own scenes. So one thing I loved was being able to tell the story through the multiple points of view, but each and each one has to advance it um, in their voice, but has to advance the story for the reader. So that was a challenge and fun. I had more fun writing this than anything I've ever written. 
Hmm, that's so good to hear. I think when there's joy in the author, there's joy or good <laughs> writing in the book, put it that way. And um, I'm so curious about your book's timing because it's set roughly over um, an eight-year period starting in 2002. And on the one hand, the book you know has a very contemporary feel specifically around the storyline of Jonah and his distaste and fear of violence and guns, uh, which feels very much of our present moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm hypothesizing that maybe you chose this timeline because you were raising your own child then and it felt more accessible. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of ask you that and you know see if that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, my own child is actually quite grown up and a father himself. So he, he, while I drew on my experience as a mother, this book is so not autobiographical or biographical of my story or my son's story. But um, yeah, it, Again, I can't explain it. I, I came across, um, part of the timing was I, I, I wanted to make it contemporary. And then I came across this story of the near bombing in Times Square, which takes place in the book on Jonah's seventh birthday when he and his family uh, and his friend are going to see the Lion King. And the bombing, the near bombing, the near terrorist attack took place uh, right at the same theater where The Lion King was playing. And somehow that helped frame the timing because that was important and that was a really important turning point in the plot. Well, speaking of the motherhood angle, Helen and Lucy are your two mom protagonists. And so Helen is the mother of Henry, the murder victim, and Lucy is the mother of Jonah, who we know to be a reincarnated Henry as the story goes on. And I'm also a mom of one boy. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and so for many of your readers, and this was something that stood out when I was reading reviews, uh, so many of the moms, of course, really resonated with the mother love aspect of the story. And so I'm just curious, you said, of course, it's not about your story with your son. Of course, you are the mother of a boy. Uh, and I was just curious to know what it was like for you to imagine these two different scenarios, you know, one of losing a child, which you haven't gone through, I'm guessing. um, And then the other of having a child, you slowly come to realize might not be all yours, so to speak. You know, how did you pull those two things forward? Well, for one thing, I think, you know, our subjects choose us. um, And motherhood is something I've always written about. So I, and I became a mother when I was quite young. I was 23, which is young by today's standards, uh, among a lot of women anyway. And so it, it's been the, I would say the most profound experience of my life. And parenthood is something, motherhood, we're always trying to get right, but we never manage to be quite as perfect as we wish we were. And in that way, it's a lot like writing. Um, You know, you simply just have to try as hard as you can to do the best that you can, which never feels quite good enough. But so much about motherhood is really about letting go because you birth these beings and then they go on and have their own lives and you don't get to say, you, you can't keep them, you know, locked up and keep them safe for their entire lives. So 
The ultimate letting go would be losing a child, which I think is the thing that I and probably most mothers who've not lost a child are afraid of. And so I really wanted to explore that. It terrified me. Um, but I'm kind of of the, the belief that you write the things that you're most afraid of. I think Dorothy Allison said that, the author of Bastard Out of Carolina. And I think it's really true. I think it's where our best work comes from, where your deepest vulnerability is. So it just seemed like that that was the place for me to go. And at times I put the book away because it was really scary for me to write that. But But I did it anyway. Um, and again, I think our subjects choose us. Barbara, I'm pondering that, um, especially because of the writing, the scary stuff, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I read in an interview that you're a morning writer and that you do a lot of musing and a lot of walking and a lot of snacking as part of your writing process. <laughs> and and all of that sounds exactly like my process. And I'm curious, especially since you're coming from, from the nonfiction side whether and you and you mentioned that writing a novel was liberating in a sense did you did your process change did that morning routine change did your your musing or snacking change as a result <laughs> um more well wordle was invented during during this time that i finished the book but mm. um yeah i no, i tend to meditate in the morning before i write and try to get really quiet and try to kind of stay in that sort of dream state I think that's the advantage of writing in the morning rather than going to your computer and doing email or texts and any of that. Uh, I would say the process opened up probably more when you're on a deadline for an essay or an article, the parameters are much more limited. In writing fiction, even if you outline, which I did and throughout most of my outlines, you don't always know what's going to happen next. So I found myself taking great pauses. That's when I would go for the walks or get another cup of tea or nosh on something because I had to figure out what happened next. And I wouldn't know. And somehow by taking myself away from the screen, away from trying to push it, it would come the character would talk. I would go outside and go for a walk and the characters would tell me what needed to happen. Um, I think the process of all writing, and especially if it's personal writing and memoir too, you know, there's, there's a lot of intuition and synchronicity and things falling into place. In fiction, again, because the field is so much larger and the choices are infinite. I think it takes sort of more kind of opening up to the intuitive to know how to proceed. 
I love that so much. And I like how much we're circling intuition. You know, we, we always have a theme and I had sort of chosen genre blending for yours, but we'll have to have you back on to talk about intuition because it's such a big one. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but we are going to close around this merging question we spoke a little bit about earlier because it is so, it is a literary book. And as you said, I mean, you made a choice to write a thriller and, and it's also metaphysical, which is honestly one of those shadow categories that publishers can sometimes feel a little iffy about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know from my work with authors that a lot of publishers are allergic to what you might call spiritual fiction. Mm-hmm. And so I think you've managed to thread a needle a little bit with your book. And I'm curious the degree to which you felt aware of that, you know, and or of doing something new, because that was another thing I saw on the, almost all of the Goodreads reviews, which are excellent, by the way, that people just said this was like nothing they'd ever read before. Um, and I was thinking in part that's to do with the genre blending. And I'm wondering what you think. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think absolutely. And to be honest, I was prepared to self-publish or reach out to you or <laughs> whatever. I, I didn't know that a publisher would go for this because it is definitely a genre blending book and bringing spirituality into it could, you know, make some publishers squeamish. But again, I think that's why the thriller form allowed me to do stuff that would have been hard for me to do if I'd written it in some just, I don't know, more earnest kind of literary way that that didn't have quite the propulsion that this has. But I I didn't, what I knew was I had to write this book. This book possessed me. I had no choice to write the book, even though at times I put it away and tried not to. But I didn't know the outcome. Uh, I didn't know how it would get published. And then remarkably, Harper bought it, which was thrilling for for my thriller. And I think because of the form, it 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 sort of got under that radar, but it, it it it's a quirky book, no question. Well, quirky and people love it, and it's coming out this month, and so congratulations to you. And uh, I I also really really enjoyed it, and I hope everyone would read it. So uh, congratulations. Thank you so much. So nice to talk to you. Likewise, Barbara. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you both. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Books getting shorter is today's trend. And honestly, Grant, this is an important one because the cost of paper is going up so much. And the shorter the book, the less paper we use. And that 
is a good thing, at least. <laughs> yeah, I actually read in Jane Friedman's hot sheet just recently that the average length of a book has declined by eleven point eight percent, which surprised me, just in the sense that eleven point eight percent is is a lot.、Um, and the report she cited also said that long books, meaning books over four hundred pages, are disappearing. And this one didn't surprise me too much because it's it's a commitment to read a book that's over four hundred pages. I can barely make that commitment、uh, anymore. And you and I have talked about that previously on the show. I think a lot of readers gravitate away from super long books because that you know they're just too daunting in the midst of our increasingly busy lives. Yeah, definitely. And I will speak to that personally because I've been talking all year about. Slowly reading Anna Karenina,、mm. <laughs> which which I am still, but it's eight hundred pages, and so I just pick it up here and there. I read a chapter, I put it away, and it's not only long; it's also slow going. And I don't want to speed read it like I sometimes am able to do with more commercial fiction, and it's a classic, so of course. But you know, I remember when I was in my book club,、um, and the rest of the women in the club would often protest if we chose something too long. And I do remember four hundred pages being the Ceiling, and so that's an important consideration for writers and authors, not to push yourself out of your marketplace by making your book too long. Yeah, and it, as you said, you know, I think there are some real benefits here. That you know, the paper cost savings is a real incentive since mo- so many authors are self and indie publishing these days. And if you're bearing the cost of your own manufacturing costs, then these shorter books can can be a game changer. And then you know, I was thinking about this in terms of you know being a fan of of tinier stories, which also includes the novella in my book. And I think the novella is an often unrecognized form, and it's one that publishers have have often shied away from publishing be- simply because of its brevity.、Um, novellas tend to be under fifty thousand words, and you know, generally less than even forty thousand words. So for me, it's nice to think that those might be more accepted these days. I think they are, and we're seeing short memoirs too. I mean, there are so many good reasons to keep books on the shorter side. And just so listeners know, short means usually sixty to seventy thousand words in the industry. But as Grant said, they could be as short as forty thousand words. The average book is still seventy to eighty thousand words, and it's really only once you're over a hundred thousand that your book is going to hit that four hundred page mark. So keep it shorter than that. The industry does not like to see that. Number, a hundred k is too much,、uh, generally. And my last book, Right on Sisters, was just over sixty thousand, and I thought it was the perfect length at like two hundred and sixty printed pages. So not too daunting, but substantive enough. Yeah, I like that. I think sixty k is definitely plenty. And、uh, I just finished my new book, The Art of Brevity, which clocks in at just over fifty thousand words, which seemed. Plenty to me, and and still very readable. <laughs> you know, perhaps that's the recipe all writers should be aiming for. The your phrase, Brooke, not daunting, but substantive. You know, and that will equal the most、uh, potential readers. And that happens to be our approach here at Right Minded as well. Not daunting plus substantive. So we'll be back next week with another not daunting but substantive episode. And who knows, it might even be funny, scary, and romantic because we like the genre blend. So listen on your favorite podcasting platform. We'll be there. 